Welcome to a special series of a Shot in the Arm podcast, sharing the mic with Frontline Aids. As you might be able to guess, I'm not your usual host, Ben Plumley. My name is Christine Steffling, and I'm the Executive Director of Frontline Aids. And for four episodes, we're sharing the mic to profile the crucial role of communities around the world in creating a future free from AIDS. Frontline AIDS is a partnership made up of community organizations in more than 100 countries. And together we take local, national, and global action on HIV, on health, and on human rights. We've made a lot of progress over the last 30 years, but we risk losing hard-won gains. We must not lose sight that with the right investments, innovation, and community-led programs, we can end AIDS and improve the health of everyone, no matter where they live or who they are. Find out more about us at www.frontlineaids.org. And now back to Ben. And let me add my welcome to this very special episode of A Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm Ben Plumley, and it's the third of our podcasts where we're sharing the mic with Frontline Aids. And in this episode, we are offering a primer on the upcoming AIDS 2022 conference in Montreal. Ah, the Global AIDS Conference. Once the every two years highlight and foundation for the world's response to AIDS, it's had some challenges these last few years. We had to try and organize a conference in what was then Trump's USA. Then COVID hit and it went viral. And this year, many delegates from around the world from countries hardest hit by AIDS are being refused visas to enter Canada. Well, is the conference still relevant? We're also gonna discuss an upcoming report that Frontline AIDS is releasing at the conference, Protectors or Perpetrators, based on data collected by key population communities, marginalized population communities themselves, casting light on unlawful policing practices as they experience them and the impact that these experiences have had on their health and their lives. Well, to cover these issues and more, I'm delighted to be joined by a fantastic panel. First up is Oratili Mosike. She is the lead global advocacy on human rights at Frontline AIDS, originally from Botswana and Canada, and I think you're calling in from Toronto today. Is that right, Oratile? Yeah, hi, Ben. Definitely. I'm calling in from my sister's bedroom in, in very sunny and very hot Toronto. Lovely to, to be here with you today. Well, great to have you on the uh, podcast. Um, well, let's go to the uh, other side of the world then, or the south of the world. We are also joined by Liberty Matisse, the executive director of Gender Dynamics, one of the key frontline AIDS partners in Southern Africa and based in Cape Town, South Africa. So uh, how is winter, Liberty? How cold is it? Hi, Ben. Hi, everyone. Um, so winter, the sun is shining outside, but the atmosphere is very nappy here. Um, and that's what you get when you're in Cape Town, four seasons in one day, no matter the time of the, of the year. Well, I'm really gra grateful that you were able to join us, um, Liberty. Um, and then our last guest, last but no means least, I'm really thrilled that we're also joined by Victoria Kaliniuk from our friends at the Alliance for Public Health in Ukraine. Hi, Victoria. How are you and your family doing? And how are your colleagues, Andrea and Pavlo? Hi, thanks for inviting me. I hope there will be no air alarm, so I will be able to stay connected with you during the whole podcast. Andre and Paolo and the whole Alliance team is uh, working hard, even in these times are horrible in Ukraine. We are all volunteering and struggling against the war in Ukraine. Well, if if an alarm does go off, we completely understand and we are we are with you 200%. Well, let's get right to it. Oratile, the difficulties so many delegates have had in obtaining visas, especially from young community representatives from developing countries, precisely the people we need at the conference. What's going on? Yeah, well, you know, to be honest, on visas, we, we have said that IAS needs to think seriously about where it is hosting the conference. I mean, the last one was in Trump's America. We know what happened there. Um, the one before was in Europe where hostilities towards visitors from Africa and elsewhere in the global south it has continued to be a long-standing and a you know a growing issue each and every time you know it's time that institutions like IAS uh, try and recognize that visa barriers you know distance costs that are associated with 
these conferences are excluding the very people who, you know, need to be at these conferences who are, you know, disproportionately affected by HIV, you know, and every single time, you know, this, this is what happens. So if we are serious about decolonizing the AIDS response, then we need to get to a point and quite urgently where the vast majority of these conferences are in the countries that are most affected by HIV. And, you know, in our opinion, even just the suggestion that this is not possible, we feel is, is racist unto itself. Because I guess a lot of the argument would be that, um, you know, many countries don't have the facilities or capacity or might even have stricter um, uh, immigration um, uh, requirements. Um, Liberty, I mean, we've had, we've had two very major uh, conferences in South Africa, both times in Durban. Um, it's easier, is it, for people to get into the country compared to, to other countries in the global north? I wouldn't necessarily say that, Ben. I think that South Africa has its own challenges when it comes to hosting people from across the world and also very particular relationship with Afri other Afri African countries. And so what we've experienced in the past is that in many regards, uh, the visa application um, process is quite cumbersome for our regional delegates. Um, and so I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily say that it is a, the, the burden is lesser for South Africa um, in relation to the global north. But I do think that all of our countries can do much better in being able to ensure that delegates are able to attend, particularly delegates that are coming from very marginalized backgrounds and particularly from the African continent in itself and being able to create enabling, safe and friendly environments um, that is not as intense um, when it comes to the visa application process. Yeah, I guess we all have to do a better job of, you know, working with IAS, working with uh, the host country, working with their embassies. Um, it's just not good enough that we, we're in this situation. I, I wondered, um, you know, for the three of our panelists, the three of you, are uh, delegates from your groups being refused visas and, and how are you handling that? So I think in, in looking at um, from a South African vantage point, we were very concerned that we would not be able to get visas. Um, but then there was a process through which we could submit a motivation letter um, to the Canadian Embassy, which expedited visas in essence. So I think that there was somewhat of um, commitment um, at, from within South Africa to getting people to successfully apply for visas. Outside of the South African context, I do know, in, in Africa, in Southern Africa, I do know that people have been struggling. Um, and so uh, people have been denied and refused visas, or the process is, has been delayed so much that people have given up um, for the prospect of obtaining those visas. Um, and so perhaps I think um, IAS is starting within the next couple of days. I'm really hopeful that people could possibly still get um, visas, especially those who have booked transport to be able to attend the, the conference. Yeah, I mean, people have, have paid money. They've paid registration fees. They've bought flights yeah, on the assumption totally. that this would be sorted. Um, yeah. But Victoria, turning, uh, turning the page ever so slightly, um, is the Alliance for Public Health going to be represented at the conference? And indeed, is, is Ukraine as a whole going to have a presence there? Well, I just want to inform you, Ben, that I have just received my visa. And uh, just a couple of uh, maybe hours ago, I, I already was sure that finally I go to conference and I'm extremely happy to be there. And actually, yeah, we have a quite a big team which is aiming to participate in conference. And uh, some of my colleagues are still waiting for their visa confirmation. And uh, we appreciate support of Canadian government to Ukrainians in these horrible times. We know about this program which um, simplifies um, access to Canadian visa and Canadian immigration for Ukrainians due to war. But uh, anyway, it was really complicated to get this visa and it took really a lot of time because of a huge number of applicants of Ukrainian refugees. So yeah, I hope we are coming. We are coming in a good uh, like uh, number of representatives from Alliance and from Ukraine. We hope to conduct several um, events and uh, some actions regarding Ukraine generally. So hopefully we will be represented well there. 
Excellent. And we will make sure that we promote uh, any events that you have going through the range of our social media and other platforms. So that that's brilliant. Um, Victoria. Um, oh, no, sorry, sorry. I beg your pardon. Liberty, gosh, it's early in California, hence my, um, my, my slightly foggy brain. But Liberty, so we spoke a bit about um, the two conferences in Durban. Um, and, and I guess, you know, why is, why is this conference so important? If we get it right, if we get the participants right, what can we really bring to the table by having these conferences every two years? I think it's such an important learning, sharing and network, networking space for diverse actors to, to come together and see how we can stay ahead of the HIV pandemic globally. And here we have government actors, civil society actors, um, private sector, um, researchers, academics, all coming together with one aim, which is to promote health and well-being um, for all people. And so I think that this particular space remains relevant for that particular purpose. So many wonderful collaborations and partnerships that transcend national boundaries between global North-based organizations and stakeholders and global South-based organizations to really come together and, and launch a solid response. I think one of the key aspects always is looking out for the innovations, the best practices, the learnings that we can draw from each other in order to really make the response much more meaningful for our communities and really place our community members at the heart and at the center of an inclusive response. Yeah, I mean, and I think that really is, if we get it right, that's the thing that is so is so important and useful about these conferences. Um, Interested to know what people think are the going to be the key critical issues coming out. And Oratile, we're going to come on to the Frontline AIDS report in just a second. But let me put you on the spot. Um, the science coming out of the conference. We know there's going to be strong interest in these long-acting injectables, both for prevention and for treatment. They are uh, basically antiretrovirals that are in, in liquid form, that are injected and are able to be injected over a much longer period between rather than having to take an oral pill every day. So, you know, what's frontline aides take on the, uh, the, the innovations that are happening biomedically at the conference and how we can get those uh, to the people in need? Yeah, Ben, I mean, it's really exciting stuff. I mean, if you think about what we know about taking drugs, um, you know, ARVs and other drugs for, for the, you know, the duration of your life, there's, you know, a lot of, um, you know, drug exhaustion. People get tired. Anybody would get tired of taking drugs, you know, every day. So this is a really welcome uh, new innovation coming in. Um, so I think you're talking about the new injectable cavotegravir, which, you know, could be an absolute game changer for HIV prevention and treatment efforts. Um, and a game changer is desperately needed at this time. You know, this new technology has been available, though, in the U.S. for some months already. But at the time of this recording now, it still doesn't have a published price in low and middle income countries. So we're looking forward to hearing about how that's going to be managed. And let's be real in recognizing that this is also a human rights barrier. I mean, essentially access to cavotegravir and other prevention method, you know, um, commodities is a fundamentally a human rights barrier. Um, we have a, a global intellectual property regime which prioritizes uh, drug company monopolies over the right to health. And as frontline aides, we believe that needs to change. And in fact, we know that those changes are critical alongside the types of national level change that we argue for in our report. Yeah, I, of course, I, I, I have a slightly different perspective wanting everybody at the table, companies, you know, manufacturers from the North and the South, uh, as well as communities and, 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 and governments who have ultimately the, the control in driving the agenda. But it does seem, after the experience that we've had with COVID, that really very little in terms of the lessons learned originally 20 years ago that we we all saw beginning to happen at the Durban AIDS conference that really right. access hasn't moved on. It's really shocking. Um, uh, Liberty, what are the things that you're hoping to see and are excited about for the conference? 
I'm really hoping to see a big African delegation coming through and being present at the conference, um, Ben. For the mere fact that Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa in particular, carries two-thirds, uh, is home to two-thirds of people living with HIV in the world. And what we are seeing now also is about 40% of new infections um, being that of key populations. And I hate using the word, um, and for the, for this, for the sake, perhaps using a much better framing other than key populations, marginalized communities, we would really want to see a big um, presence, visibility and voice of marginalized communities from Africa at the conference to really give guidance and shape a way forward around the different strategies that can be used that puts equality, dignity and freedom as human rights imperatives at the heart of the response. And so I think for me, that excites me, but I'm, I'm yet to see what the turnout is going to look like. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Victoria, you had uh, you had mentioned a number of things that um, Alliance for Public Health has got uh, planned. But what are you hoping to get out of the conference now that you can actually be certain you're attending? Yeah, for me pers personally, um, the interest is the same as Ukrainian. I really wait uh, to represent my country and to uh, make um, like visible situation of Ukraine because it is not an issue that one country invades another country. And the situation between Ukraine and Russia affects uh, the whole region and uh, brings um, considerable changes into the region, especially in the sphere of health, right? discrimination so like um, we really expect the world uh, organizations partners all of all of them who work with us to consider the situation and to take action towards uh, finishing this horrible war also uh, for us it's important to not to calm this situation down because um, the invasion to Ukraine it's not just in like political issue, right? It's a challenge to the whole international law structure, uh, United Organization of uh, United Nations Organization mm, rules, law, I don't know. So um, we have to do something in order to not to let the same stuff uh, repeat in the future in other regions, in other countries, because that, believe me, that's horrible times we live in now in Ukraine. So I hope Ukrainian experience will serve as a good practice to prevent uh, the same stuff in other countries in the and in the other regions. Yeah, we're, we're not operating in a bubble, are we? The, the AIDS movement is not separate from everything else that is going on. And uh, I'd love to come back to this question as we look to the future later in the podcast. But why don't we go to the, the launch of the report that's going to come up at the conference? Um, and and Oratile, uh, you're the brains behind it. You're going to be the the person launching it. Um, tell us what you can about uh, the key messages of the report, how you conducted it, and and you know just why is this piece of research so important now? Thanks so much, Ben. First, I have to correct you. There is I, I'm not the brainchild. This this report has, in fact is wholly the you know the the brain the brainchild of our partnership it's um you know through conversations that we've had with our partners who work on community led monitoring and responding and who said look we need to bring an issue to the forefront we need to stop talking around issues. Um, we need to get to the point where we're able to call things out and call spades spades, rather than kind of theorizing around what we mean when we talk about inequalities and when we talk about human rights violations being the last kind of the last, you know, the last thing that we need to achieve. We know there is global policy recognition that, you know, human rights and inequalities is is what's in stopping us from ending AIDS. There's there's no doubt about that, no controversy there. However, how we get to do that um, and, and what is needed in order to end, you know, end um, these inequalities, we feel is it's essential that communities are at the center of this, that, you know, as uh, I think Liberty has, has once said to me before, you know, Liberty, you say, you know, we need to allow communities to drive our own research agenda because um, so that we can tell exactly the, the world exactly what they need to know, need to know in order to um, in order to really address these human rights barriers. So 
this report coming to the report, it's, it's a report that specifically zones in on the perpetration of human rights violations by the police and law enforcement officials. It's a, a report that takes data from our um, a project and initiative that we have at Frontline AIDS called REACT, Rights, Evidence and Action, which is a community-led monitoring system um, an initiative that we've had in place since about 2015. It's being um, implemented by partners across the world in over 20 countries with almost 300 organizations implementing the program. And basically it's intended to document the kinds of human rights violations that uh, marginalized populations are experiencing. It documents the perpetrators of those violations in quite kind of quantitative detail. And it then also kind of documents the kinds of service needs and demands that communities have and um, are being provided by community organizations themselves. So it's a quite a robust system I do have to say that probably the best part of our system is it doesn't, well, firstly, that is documented by communities themselves, which is an essential part of it. The second part that's really important is that it documents full stories and testimonials. And that's kind of what the report is going to show is kind of, we, we know it's not surprising that police are perpetrators of human rights violations. We know that criminalization is at the center of a lot of the violations that are being experienced, but our system is able to take individual stories in first person from individuals themselves about the kind of the experiences they have, which is we feel is like the most rich part. It does have quantitative data, but essentially it's going to tell the story so you can get insights into the real lived experiences of people. Um, I can't talk too much about the findings as yet. But what I can say at this point is that um, police are one of the most common perpetrators of human rights violations. They're not the only ones. Human rights violations are pervasive across the way, state actor and non-state actor um, similarly. But we feel that there's an absurdity with, with it because fundamentally policing is about protecting human rights. That's a, that's a critical global standard that essentially uh, police practices are, are intended to fundamentally protect human rights, and yet they're the very people who are perpetrating human rights violations. So it, 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 it yeah, we just feel that that, that needs to be addressed. Um, what else can I say about it? The report's going to cover data coming from our most significant um, partners in the Eastern European and Central Asian countries. So a big group that Victoria and a, a colleague of hers at APH um, manage across Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan. Where am I leaving out? Um, Kyrgyzstan, right? And then also South Africa. So um, we have a big partnership in South Africa that involves both um, gender dynamics with Liberty, as well as the AIDS Foundation for South Africa. Um, so we're kind of just using kind of, you know, these partners as the key um, kind of contributors to the report. However, what we can say is that we feel that these violations are universal. Um, mm -hmm. and, and we know that it's it's not just these countries experiencing it. So, yeah. So Oratile, I mean, it sounds to me like you're adapting a model that many human rights organizations have done in terms of drawing the world's attention to abuses as they happen. And it's a difficult challenge to, to quantify that. So it'll be very interesting to see uh, those data as they come out. And actually, perhaps we could, once you have gone live with the report, uh, bring you into one of our daily podcasts from the conference to just share actually what, what you found in detail. But it's clearly a moral outrage in its own right. But I think what would be really helpful to folks as they prepare for the conference is to understand why unlawful action by law enforcement is a public health threat. What's its impact on HIV? I mean, I think colleagues can speak to some of those experiences. I think what we should first def define by unlawful policing practices is very something very specific. It's basically a breach of rule of law. So it's it's what we're saying is that the police, if they were to conduct themselves lawfully in a way that's lawful, in other words, in, in adherence to the protection of human rights, then we might still have issues because criminalization in some ways creates the, uh, uh, facilitates um, 
like punitive measures facilitates ongoing stigma. However, what we see is that even in places where there's quite progressive legislation happening, um, the police often will use other kind of administrative and other kind of um, uh, bylaws and regulations to subvert um, their responsibility to protecting rights. So they'll use loitering legislation or nuisance. This is commonly mm. known. Um, so that's what we mean by unlawful policing practices. For us, we feel governments should be concerned not only from an HIV perspective, but also because we feel it is, uh, it's impeding rule of law and governance. It's fundamentally about democracy and, and you know, responsibility around democracy is that governments are duty bearers. They have a, the, the ultimate responsibility for respecting and protecting rights. And yet their very actors, being the police, are the ones violating rights. So, yeah. Liberty, I saw you nodding your head vigorously earlier on, and I wondered if you could give us some perspective from South Africa, which, you know, over the last 30-odd years has gone through extraordinary transformations and has one of the best constitutions, aspirational constitutions in the world. Um, what did you see from your contribution to this report? I think that in, in, in alignment with what um, Oradile has stated, Ben, um, definitely law enforcement officials are being found to be um, some of the biggest perpetrators of human rights violations within our context. And of course, we, we rolled out the REACT program at the local level within the city of Cape Town, and hopefully we can upscale that in the in the years to come to a national level um, as well. But I think that in addition to, to what she has said, the political legal order in the country, favorable as it might look, where our country protects LGBTQI plus persons constitutionally by virtue of the equality clause, and their subordinate legislation in the form of the Civil Union Act um, that governs same-sex marriage particularly, but not exclusively. And then, of course, the alteration of Sex Description and Sex Status Act 49 of 2003 that governs legal gender recognition. Regardless, regardless of the, these particular laws being in place, we still don't have a comprehensive framework that protects the rights of marginalized communities. For one, sex work is still criminalized within the country, and we are working towards decriminalization in order to create an enabling legal landscape whereby um, sex workers, people who engage in sex work, are not um, being becoming targets for police officials and law enforcement officials, and therefore undermining um, the HIV response. Aratila has spoken in brief about the bylaws that criminalizes poverty and, and homelessness and the impact that it has on trans women of color, particularly, that are being marginalized in a variety of ways. Um, and so the law enforcement officials are using these laws um, to, of course, criminalize, but also in many instances, um, engaging in transphobia by misgendering people, dead naming people, and then, of course, provoking street-based trans and gender-diverse persons into a response, and that becomes the basis for the arrest. And so that is quite clearly an abuse of authority and an abuse of power and something that we are challenged by. Um, just broadly speaking, within the country, police brutality is also nothing new. And we really saw this play itself out at the heart of COVID-19, where there were numerous cases being reported of how um, police officials, law enforcement officials used it as an opportunity to clamp down on people's human rights, to freedom of movement, and even, of course, subjecting people to physical violations. And there are many media reports to that extent. Law enforcement, um, the, the, the negative experiences on the part of law enforcement officials and police um, officials is not isolated. I think that, that that cascades through the entire healthcare system where many people are being alienated from accessing or seeking access to healthcare because of fear of stigma, discrimination and violence. Just to give you one example, again in South Africa, the onus 
to to prove one's legal um, gender gender legally is quite high. You need medical evidence before you can even start the application process for gender market change legally. So that results um, in many people not being able to obtain that. And so when we go to health facilities, oftentimes our legal identity does not correspond to our actual identity. And that becomes the first line for stigma and discrimination in an unsensitized um, and ill-equipped healthcare workforce. And so we need to do a lot of work with healthcare service providers in itself to unlearn and relearn new ways of understanding difference and diversities so that many more trans and gender diverse and other marginalized communities can feel safe and enabled when we are seeking access to services um, and particularly life-changing and life-saving services such as HIV services. I'm particularly grateful to you, Liberty, for highlighting um, the needs of trans communities um, in the context of South and Southern Africa, because so often, you know, we hear from political leaders, one, um, LGBT uh, issues don't affect uh, African cultures. And, and, and secondly, there are, there's very little trans experience in Africa. And so it was very important. I'm deeply grateful to you for, for highlighting that. Um, Victoria, wow. Uh, I mean, if we were recording this uh, in a different reality where Russia's President Putin hadn't completely gone off the rails and started this murderous invasion, I'd be asking you, does what Victor Liberty say, does it resonate with you? But in this context, given the invasion of Ukraine, can you put the findings that you've, or, or the work that you've done in this report in the broader context, you know, inevitably the invasion has affected the uh, human rights of people across the region and the role of, of law enforcement, particularly in occupied parts of Ukraine, is, is clearly of huge concern. But what really stands out to you and what are the things that you really think we need to be, f need to have first on our minds? Well, regarding Ukraine, I would say that even though we have wartime, we have so much challenges, we have so much, our government has so much, so many priorities, I can say that health system um, was strongly built in Ukraine and uh, services, HIV-related services and prevention and community, uh, communities were so uh, strongly involved. Uh, all these services were based on communities and on NGOs. So uh, what I can see now in Ukraine as Ukrainians that uh, we cope well as it as much as it is possible um, with all these challenges. I mean, in a health um, um, sphere and in uh, like providing services to communities. So, for example, a lot of uh, people who inject drugs they moved to western part of Ukraine and they successfully received their treatment, OST treatment, there in new locations. And we cope to organize very quickly um, services in new locations for a lot of refugees and people who migrated to new areas in Ukraine and actually abroad from the very uh, first days of invasion we started to work as a crazy people to just to be quickly adapted to this situation because we knew that behind of our work uh, there are people who need our support who need new services who need much more support and help as we do need uh, as uh, officers, as uh, uh, just uh, organization members, right? So we launched a lot of initiatives to provide um, people from Ukraine who migrated to Europe uh, to access um, a, a HIV treatment, IV drugs, uh, OST treatment. We tried to organize this very quickly as a response to this uh, situation. Uh, if talking about human rights violations, especially on occupied territories, of course, um, the situation is horrible and we still do not even understand the level of this uh, horror which happens there. The very poor evidence which we now possess, cases documented of uh, raping of women intentively, uh, of uh, tortures, of um, arbitrary detentions uh, by occupant, uh, occupants. So uh, it's uh, just a top of iceberg of what we know. Uh, the whole world, world knows about uh, Bucha and European, but unfortunately, uh, we are afraid that uh, the same situation is in the south of Ukraine, 
in the east of Ukraine in the areas which are now occupied uh, by Russia. So uh, coming back to the report and to uh, talking about generally about the region, what um, value we see in this report about un unlawful uh, policy uh, police practicing is that what we see in comparison between Ukraine and Russia. Russia all this time had very uh, powerful law enforcement in their country, like it was uh, very empowered and they could do everything they actually wanted, right? So it was very police state. And we see now how it turns on, how it turns um, this very police state, it turns into terror, terror state and even to terrorism state. So uh, otherwise in Ukraine, we had a reform of police and we see that actually in Ukraine, police is more progressive. Uh, we consider police as a protectors. We consider them as a, um, officers whom we can go to ask for support and for help. So this is a big difference. Uh, and this is, uh, it shows importance of investing correctly into law enforcement agencies in the states because we see how these law enforcement influence into progress of the whole country uh, how it influences um, uh, of the situation of uh, human with human rights and and democracy uh, in in this country especially when we talk about marginalized people who are on the like front frontier with all these unlawful policy practices what did you see in, in other countries in the region? Uh, were there things that stood out to you that you think perhaps uh, we should all be aware of? Um, you know, I remember, uh, Oratila, do you remember that evening we had like very late evening call with you brainstorming about, okay, front, um, 8 2022 is coming, what can we do jointly? Because there are a lot of data, a lot of information, a lot of countries participating, a lot of partners. So. Um, what we can do, what is in common between all these countries, right. all these regions, all these key groups. So like very um, diverse uh, environment we work in, but we should uh, have found, find some, some common things. So, and then I, I remember that uh, we understood that police is a very common perpetrator for every country, every region, every key population, let's not say so, but let's say marginalized populations who are very affected by these unlawful uh, police practices. So that evening we came up with ideas that, yeah, police is the direction we should work with because actually police is an obstacle to protect uh, one's rights, right? When we, for example, meet some uh, woman who is raped and she did not trust the police to go and ask for protection, for support. When this woman suffers from domestic violence, she's far from coming to police and declaring this because she doesn't have trust to police uh, in her country. And that's a big obstacle generally in all human rights protection sphere. The same we can tell about uh, health. You, I remember you, you asked before, what's the connection between health and police? So I will tell you the answer. Imagine in some countries of Central Asia, police is still responsible for health issues. So imagine there are like special office police officers in police departments who are officially responsible for HIV prevention in this district. I came to that country asking like, don't you consider it strange that police is occupying health issues like HIV prevention and testing and, and, and all this stuff. So I, I, I asked people from that country, don't you consider this strange? Health is the issue and the sphere of work for doctors. Police has to protect us from crimes, that is. So yeah, police is still there. It is still in health sector very strongly, especially in Central Asia. What we can see from evidence we have collected from statistics, from data, we see a lot of cases of compulsory testing, HIV testing in Uzbekistan. We have a lot of evidence of criminalization of HIV uh, transmission in Tajikistan. It's still a great, great issue for, for our countries. All right. Can I just can I just butt in there to just to re thanks for that reminder, Victoria, that that was our intention when we did this report. We wanted something that joined us all in common cause. And I think we really did hit on something that everybody is really can back and, and, and agree with. I just wanted to add two things to what you've said. I, um, firstly, 
the, the thing that was really a shocker in the report, maybe not so shocking to, to you because of the, you know, unfortunately, this is the state of affairs, is how pervasive the violations are in, in the way that it policing, um, uh, uh, police abuse happens virtually everywhere. I mean, there's stories where police are invading people's homes, people's workplaces, people, you know, getting arrested on the way to work, on the way to the supermarket, on the way to, like, there's just no safe space. Like, there's just nowhere where people can be because I think we all understand this is that criminalization, although intended to, to criminalize conduct or behavior, inevitably ends up criminalizing people. So if you become known to be a person living with HIV or a person who uses drugs or a sex worker, then that is all they see. And so wherever they find you, then you are a target. So I think that's that's the one thing. And that then makes it a civil and political issue, which is goes back to the whole issue around it being a democratic issue. This isn't just about health. This is about people's fundamental rights or first generation, if you want to be traditional about mm -hmm. it. The second thing is to say is how how pervasive it is in terms of the number of rights that are impacted. Um, whilst this report is, um, is new and fresh, there are a lot of reports that we've already done as a partnership. So for instance, there's a great report that's been done by APH called, can you just remind me a name? Uh, declaration or decor or decoration? Yeah, De declaration crossed a declaration of human rights. It was dedicated to 10th of December, Day of Human Rights, and the, this declaration signed actually. So yeah, yeah. So it's a great, great advocacy tool that shows that every single right that's part of the U UDHR Universal Declaration on Human Rights is impacted by not just policing, obviously, but you know, all the, the human rights violations that are occurring across the way. So just if you think about as an individual that every single right is being affected, not just health rights, rights to education, um, mm -hmm. you know, rights to housing from the home, like we was talking mm -hmm. about homelessness. And I, I really do value, for instance, what Liberty has often said about the approaches we need to take to be a lot more holistic in our approach to this response. This is not just an HIV response. This needs to be a much more intersectional and better coordinated response with other with other sectors. So Oratile, let me dive in here. And it's a question, I guess, for the three of you. What are the key messages that you want or the calls to action that you want policymakers to do, to take forward, to respond? Um, you know, how can we go beyond uh, revulsion at the behavior of law enforcement to demand and to offer concrete suggestions on what to do? I mean, just to say, first and foremost, like I think as we, from my point of view, from Frontline Aces' point of view, the global recognition is there and that's important. There is already, you know, it's saturated, you know, this is acknowledged globally. What needs to happen is governments themselves as state actors need to take on the role that they have as governments. I mean, their whole legitimacy as governments comes from their ability and their responsibility to respect, protect and promote rights. So I think the first recommendation would be that governments themselves get their own state actors in order, ensure that police are not perpetrating human rights violations themselves, um, probably the most extreme kind a violation is where a state actor themselves is perpetrating it. The second thing would be that state actors need to then protect rights and ensure that where human rights violations are occurring, that they come in and help to restore rights and remedy rights. So that's enabling um, uh, uh, marginalized populations to access justice, and that's key. Um, I would say, thirdly, would really be important that we are doing greater investment in community-led monitoring and responding, and that is a critical intervention. We need communities to be doing their own research. Um, and I think all of the other stuff that we've been talking about, which is about um, you know, repealing discriminatory legislation and ensuring that other legislation that is in place is not used in ways that uh, kind of mm -hmm. circumvent um, so even if you decriminalize, let's say, sex work, then you're not using other legislation yeah. to, in some ways, mm -hmm. inadvertently criminalize people de facto. But I'll leave the rest to my colleagues. I mean, Liberty, picking mm -hmm. up from that, I mean, again, the great South African constitution, but its application in reality. Mm -hmm. What do you want policymakers from the continent to take from this report? 
I think that that policymakers need to recognize how law and politics um, creates a set of circumstances that relegate certain communities to the margins of society. Um, in the context of LGBTQI plus communities from a very young age where you are taught and by your family, by your community, by society that you are worthless. And so how do you negotiate your agency and autonomy in a society that at the legal, as a legal stance, as a political stance, as a social stance, it's telling you that you are worthless. And so we need to rethink and revisit the types of societies we want to create where people are not taught from a young age that they are worthless. Because ultimately that culminates in people feeling stripped of agency and autonomy and leading to negative decisions that one takes about yourself, about your body in the greater scheme of things. And that's going to, what we need to do, what policymakers need to do is to look at the intersecting ways in which people are being marginalized at an economic level where um, marginalized community members cannot participate within education, both basic and higher, in order to get the necessary skills and experience to participate optimally within um, the formal economy. Secondly, being able to access social services and support to support health and well-being. Thirdly, to look at to look beyond criminalization, decriminalization, because it's one thing to, 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 to decriminalize, it's quite another to take an active stance to protect and recognize particular communities that have been marginalized and say that you belong and to uphold dignity, equality, and freedom. And so when we look at, at the African continent, there's a lot of conversations about countering violence, addressing um, engaging the HIV response, decriminalizing, but we are not hearing a lot about what comes beyond that. What does it mean to have access to legal gender recognition on the basis of gender self-determination and where healthcare professionals are not gatekeepers to legal gender recognition in and of itself, to make it more accessible to more community members so that your identification document can reflect your actual identity within society. What does it mean for families, diverse forms of families, to be constituted without that being a frowned upon, without people fearing to constitute these families and really be able to live in the light of our societies as opposed to being relegated and pushed to the, to the margins and to the dark sides of our societies? And I think policymakers really need to ask ourselves the question, who do we want to be as a continent? Who do we want to be as societies? And how do we engage difference and diversities where we are not seeing it as a negative social feature, but a, social, a positive social societal feature that strengthen us, strengthens us in the short and in the long term? And to the point around LGBTQI plus persons being un-African, because that is still the rhetoric that goes around, there is numerous amounts of research by, by incredible academics, feminist academics, um, that speaks to a pre-colonial Africa where marginalized, sexual and gender diverse marginalized communities could live in harmony with African societies, never being condemned, never being condoned, but it was just accepted as an ordinary part of community. And so how do we get back to that as African societies to reconnect ourselves and disrupt the negativity that has also been instilled through a colonial era that has imposed these draconian laws on the continent that is now saying that certain bodies matters more than other bodies. Oh, it's perfidious Albion. It's the, the, the heritage of that British empire that, you know, we still have to untangle. Um, in concrete terms, Liberty, uh, gender dynamics is a fascinating and, and um, a really valuable organisation. What are you guys doing um, to, to address these really on the front lines? Certainly, Ben. So it's not just guys that work at gender dynamics. It's a lot of people. 
I screwed that up, didn't I? I should have said guys and girls and non-binary people. My apologies. Hundred percent, hundred percent. So we are a human rights organization and considered an anchor human rights organization within the trans and gender diverse movement, um, particularly within Southern Africa, but also continentally. Um, we are the oldest registered trans-specific human rights organization on the continent. And our work revolves around advocacy, research, capacity strengthening, and facilitating community access to direct services. We work in three disciplines specifically, but not exclusively. And this is in the context of law, where we are championing legal gender recognition on the basis of deeper um, gender self-determination. We work in the context of health where we are advancing gender-affirming health care on the basis of depathologization and decentralization of um, health care, comprehensive gender-affirming health care to a primary health level, as well as within the context of inclusive quality education where we are championing um, where we, we are countering the dropout and stopout rates that, that trans and gender diverse persons experience within basic and higher education and seeing how we can create um, inclusive, safe and enabling educative spaces. And this work, of course, all ties up to our broader work around movement building and movement strengthening in the sub-region of Southern Africa. And one of our flagship programs or projects at the moment is the REACT program that we are speaking about, where we are increasingly seeing the value of human rights documentation to generate evidence and information. And then secondly, trying to um, enhance our human rights responses through a um, variety of partners that we work with on a day-to-day basis. I mean, it takes my breath away, really. And it's just um, just highlights to me what a uh, valuable and precious partnership Frontline AIDS is between, 100%. yeah, you know, between the organizations that we've had on previous episodes, but the conversation we're having now, it, 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 um, um, I'm almost getting tearful. Um, who knew that in my old age? Um, <laughs> I, Victoria, for, for you, what would you really like policymakers um, and key influences at the conference to take away? What will be most helpful to you guys? Alliance for Public Health and our partners, we strongly advocate for decriminalization of uh, marginalized populations. That's our be- uh, big um, uh, advocacy sphere. That's our big goal in our region to uh, advocate for repealing of laws which criminalize uh, HIV, drug use, uh, sex work, and even same-sex relationships, which still are criminalized in some countries of um, certain Central Asia. So, because such laws are a carte blanche for unlawful policy, it's a like um, green light to such uh, pol- uh, unlawful pol- uh, police practices. It what lets them do so. So, we believe that changing laws, we might be able to change the situation. Of course, changing laws has to be accompanied with a great work uh, dedicated to change people's minds, to eliminate stigma and discrimination in the in population of this country. So it has to be two uh, parallel processes, um, changing laws and changing environment in these countries so that these new good laws will would, would work. So our main idea is that changing laws, which, which criminalize um, such essential stuff like mm, it's very strange for us still to, to explain to people that HIV is just a, one of the illnesses people can have is the same as allergy is the same as diabetes so why that does hiv has to be standing out of the just a list of other illnesses or diseases and the same we we advocate that um, criminalization simply doesn't work so if you want to reduce drug use in your country criminalizing drug use will not work at all just putting people who use drugs into prisons will not solve uh, uh, solve the situation. People who are addicted to drugs, they have to be treated. People who have HIV, they have to receive and uh, be able to access uh, available treatment in their countries. People 
which um, uh, who who um, uh, who are from LGBT communities uh, can have to be freely, openly uh, feeling themselves in their country with no fear and no uh, fear of violence on the streets or even so violence from our, from the state. So that's the aim we we work towards uh, within our organization, our projects, and our team. Wow. So Oratile. When and where will the report be uh, launched? Yes, so the report's going to be available at AIDS 22. Um, it will be available prior to the launch, which is happening um, on the 2nd of August between 8 to 9 a.m. Montreal time, which is a good time for folks in, in, in you know, Eastern Europe and Central Asia, as well as Sub-Saharan Africa, where we have a lot of our partners um, represented in the report. But do look out for it. And if you're old school and want a copy of it, you can come to our booth and, and grab one for yourself to read. It will well, also that... be available online. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I was old school, an actual report. Blimey. An actual Blimey. report. You can highlight it and do everything. <laughs> So that's really good news because it means that our daily A Shot in the Arm podcasts from the conference, we can wrap up with a grand finale coming after the uh, special session that you have on the 2nd. So that's terrific. Yeah, no, that would be great. Um, on the 2nd of August, that would be awesome. And then people can go home with the podcast to listen to. <laughs> so one final question. These conferences, whether you're in person or virtual, can be quite a bind. They can be really exhausting. You said start at eight o'clock, uh, Oratili. That feels like mid-morning to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, first meeting starting at six and then running on till, till midnight. <laughs> so what are the panel's escape routes from the conference? What is your book, We're not leaving your, them leave. <laughs> your binge watch, your social media theme? Victoria, what's, what's keeping you sane at the moment? Well, I would say that we are uh, we are keeping being motivated by our aim. I would say so. The more you understand that uh, actions you take, meetings you participate in, people you talk with, can lead to some changes, can bring some positive changes into the region, to the countries, to people you work for. Actually, this brings a lot of motivation, and you can you you may not sleep for for um, days and and weeks. Uh, you you can avoid eating. Just you have so much effort, um, force inside you, driven by people behind you for whom you work. Actually, so I think that's our resource of energy. Liberty. I think that just living by the motto, whether at the conference or in one's own context, don't forget to be kind to yourself. And also, if your body is telling you that it feels overworked and overwhelmed, do take some time off and, and make the necessary arrangements if you need to. I think that we are living through a space where there's so much burnout around us and that we often take our bodies for granted in that sense. Um, I think in, in, when I attend conferences, what I often find is that a lot of the critical discussions and debates are happening outside of the actual program that it were that some of the conversations happen and a lot of the learning also takes place there because of how people are then able to absorb better in a much more relaxed way so don't forget to spend some time with people colleagues partners outside of the space and just having some conversations and engagement but i look forward to to what um, is 2022 has to offer and i'll be i'll try my utmost to be present for all of it <laughs> And Oratile, how will you be uh, staying calm and and, uh, and cool your fettered brow during this time? Oh, staying calm is overrated. I mean, there's nothing, <laughs> no, no calm is needed. We're all really excited. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing partners that I haven't seen in over three years. I'm looking forward to seeing Liberty, who's going to be there in person, and Victoria and a whole bunch of other people. Um, we have a partnership dinner, which I look forward to. I am actually in um, the bedroom of uh, my sister's bedroom, actually, in Toronto, because I'm going <laughs> to go to the Global Black Pride event next week first. Nice! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm here, my family's here, so it's been really great to have that support as well, but really just inspired by our partnership and, yeah, really inspired by what we've managed to do with the report. So thanks mm -hmm. to everybody. And thank you for the, the shout out to Global Black Pride. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, Frontline Aids has a close relationship 
with it because one of its founders, Michael Igadero, is, of course, a trustee of Frontline AIDS. Um, Michael is also a friend of a Shot in the Arm podcast. We were able to interview him um, earlier this year, which was terrific. Um, so to completely uh, um, show how limited my intelligence is com compared to everybody else, the thing that is keeping me sane at the moment is a TikTok sensation. It's a young uh, lesbian farmer from Southern Florida who makes short informational videos about the animals on her farm. And there is one in particular, an emu called Emmanuel, who keeps interrupting and uh, knocks her camera off. And it's just hysterical. So the meme is, Emmanuel, don't do it. Um, so uh, if you've got the odd 30 seconds, have a look at it. It'll bring a chuckle to your, to your face. Well, thank you to all our panelists. What an incredible conversation. Thanks also to Eric Espera, our producer and director from NewsDoc Media. Thanks to Ali Liu from Frontline Aids, our local producer in Brighton in the UK. And a final thanks to you all for listening and watching. You can find us, of course, on every podcast platform and on our YouTube channel. Uh, don't forget to subscribe and give us five stars. Have a great week and a safe week, everybody. Thank you all very, very much. Really, really appreciated this conversation. See you guys soon. Take care, Thanks, everyone. Ben.